Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we are back for more with Bill Berner. Hello again. He's a TV director of photography with 40 years of experience in television, and I'm thrilled to have you back. And happy to be here. That 40 years, ouch, is all I <laughs> There's a few of us old dogs still out there, you know. And uh, we're trying to get them all on the show. <laughs> That's very, very funny. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I've definitely been around and was been lucky enough to be able to you know drag a few people in along behind me well that's important in this business and it's you know it's it's interesting to hear like people like you or ken billington talk about how important that is i just want to point i'm not as old as ken that's fair i'm sure everyone from every generation that's come through will say it but you know the changes uh, have really been radical i think i I mentioned uh when when we were talking that when i started in the mid 80s you know, and we were we were lighting to 125, 160 foot candles, and now we're we're lighting to 24 foot candles. And the amount that we can leave in shadow and still see into the shadows, and how much harder we can push the highlights now than we could then, or just on the most basic level, being able to actually shoot a light and not burn up a tube of a camera. And then, you know, we started in standard def. Then whenever it was around the 90s, oh, look at this thing, high def. And now and we jumped up maybe five, six years ago, seven years ago. Suddenly, oh, OK, we're going to do the shows in 4K. And now I'm doing stuff in 6K. Well, so since we're here, how has the advance of technology changed your job? And how has it changed what you can deliver and what you can ask cameras to capture? Well, again, it's the extended, that extra dynamic range in the camera where, you know, your darkest dark to your lightest light might have been seven f-stops of of luminance. And and now we are up to 13, 14. And, you know, when you think about the fact that every f-stop is a doubling of light level, that's a huge difference. So the amount that you can then take a highlight and not have it blow out, still have detail in there, is just massively distant. Or on the other like say the other side of the coin, when stuff would just fall off into just total noise before, and that now you can actually you can see into those blacks and you can pull detail out of them. It's a whole different game. And the way, at least in my world, the post-production has evolved with the amount that in uh, commonly call it color correct, I prefer to call it color grading, that we can do after the edit, before the show goes to online, to either fix or improve stuff is, you know, 15 years ago, it was really very much what came out of the video room was really pretty much what went on air. And now... I mean, actually, literally, in the shows that I'm doing where we're either shooting in log or in raw, you would not be able to put that on the air. I mean, you're really, it's not photographically a negative image, but we refer to it, it's really a camera negative that you're then taking and you're literally processing it when you get to post, you know, so the freedom and the and the ability to adjust after the fact, uh, long after you've shot the thing. And that ability also makes it 
possible to work faster on set because if you do have an exposure problem or you have a couple of very mismatched skin tones because you're in a two shot with someone who's got alabaster skin with a very darkly complected uh, African-American uh, where you say, okay, I'm going to let it go and I'll deal and I'll deal with it later when I get to post. So you're not holding up production. I remember you saying it was possible, you know, let's say you wanted a dark and moody interior looking out into, say, the brightness of a city outside, that you can actually apply different lookup tables to those two separate parts of the roster. Yeah, I mean, strictly speaking, it's not a lot, but what you can do, there, there's any numbers of way to do it once, once you get to, to color grading, where you can grab that part of the image and manipulate that specifically. And you can even, now it's become incredibly easy if it's a human being that, you, that you're trying to change an aspect of their color or, or exposure, and they're moving across the frame, it's not a big deal anymore. The, the, the software auto-tracks the people. So you apply your grade where they start, and you basically dial in so that the software as they cross the frame will just track the person and keep those settings as they move through. Or you can also set key points. So if you're going from a dark area to a bright area and you want to balance that out, you can set it so, okay, it's raising the exposure here. And then as they cross, that will uh, ramp out for as they get to the darker area. And it doesn't even have to be done linearly. You know, you can go, okay, ooh, I really, I need to come down or I need to come up a whole bunch on those first two steps and then much less for the next five. It just, it doesn't take a whole hell of a lot of time uh, if you need to do that. I mean, hopefully you don't need to do that. And most of the time you don't. Usually we start with the colorist when we get our first episode, we establish the look for the show. And again, on the sitcom world, the looks don't really change a whole uh, hell of a lot. You establish a night look, a day look, you know, a night with the lights on, a night with the lights off as those scenes come up. And then the colorist generally will do a pass without you. And he'll dial in the show. And a lot of every time he comes back to a particular set, he's pretty much bringing up his same settings that he had for the last time he was in that set. Then in the pre-COVID days, if I didn't have a schedule conflict, I would then go in to the color suite with the colorist and we would go through the show again. And basically I would just say, stop, hold on there. Okay, you see that area on the upper left there on the wall? Let's bring that down a little bit. You know, boom, he could do it. Okay, we move on. I get, we get to whatever the next shot that bumps me in one way or another. I would just give instructions along the way. And over the course of the two hours, you can get the show tweaked in, in ways that, again, in the past you would never be able to do. Post-COVID days, or for that matter, when I used to have, would have conflicts where I was shooting while the colorist was working, they would send, I would get a link to the colorist's pass of the show, and I would simply take notes with time code and then send them on. So there's a little bit of a, an act of faith because you're saying what you want, but you're not actually seeing the final result. And you don't get, or at least I never would get, a second review to see if my notes were interpreted properly. Pre-COVID, if I had a conflict, I would do my best to look at the show on my reference monitor at the stage uh, so that I'm really seeing the real deal. Uh, that post-COVID became no longer possible. So Netflix 
issued everyone that needed them iPad Pros with instructions on how to set them up to get a real good representative picture. Uh, so they would send me the links. I'd look at it on the iPad Pro and do an Excel spreadsheet of all of, all of my notes and send them on. The other thing that I didn't mention that uh, I do in the Color Correct, which is where another place where it separates DP away from lighting designer, is I will have uh, shots reframed. I'll have shots blown up uh, and repositioned if I don't think the framing was quite right or if there's a piece of another actor where it's where it's not a real over where being over the shoulder of somebody else, but if it just there's an arm or a hand or something creeping into the frame that really shouldn't be there. So I'll blow up and reposition shots. Um, and actually when I do that, the time-consuming thing that I've done now is I will do a screen recording of the section of, of that shot. I'll take it into Final Cut and I'll make a two-box window with the original shot and the reframe that I want. And then that goes to post-production. And in those cases, that stuff also goes to the executive producer because for reframes, that those have to be signed off on by someone who's got more stripes on their sleeve than I do. Um, but I, I've never had an issue where they've, they've said, no, don't, don't do that one. And it, that's one of the reasons why shooting 6K has become so great. I don't get to do it that often, but it gives you a huge amount of area that you can blow up and you still have a 4K master. Yeah, that makes sense. With Netflix, a blow up is considered a not, in terms of their tech specs, they consider it like a non-approved camera in the same, and you're allowed 10% of an episode screen time for the use of, again, quote, non-approved stuff. So I know on a, our show was running, I think, typically around 26 minutes, since there's no commercials, maybe 27. Um, so I know, okay, uh, all of that reframing stuff, I got to keep it under two and a half minutes or it's or their QC, their quality control is going to kick it back uh, to our post department. And they are very, very strict in their quality control. So on the crew, what COVID protocols were you working under once you came back? Okay. Once we came back, um, we were divided sort of into pods. Uh, there were three groups. There was the group that was allowed essentially total access to talent. Uh, uh, there's a group who was allowed on stage, but was supposed to maintain, you know, social distancing from talent at all times. And then there was another group that of people who were actually not even allowed on stage. And that's sort of the production office people who didn't tip, you know, obviously didn't need to be there. Uh, the first group was really limited pretty much to uh, the AD department, uh, assistant, uh, uh, assistant directors, um, executive producers, director, and hair and makeup. Uh, and they had to be gowned all the time, a mask and shield uh, and gloves. Um, when the cast wasn't on set, 
you were allowed, and those had to be, those masks when the cast was on had to be real N95s. Uh, mm-hmm. When the cast wasn't on set, you could get rid of the face shield and you could change over to a more comfortable surgi- uh, surgical uh, mask, uh, that which is also what the B group had. We had, if the cast wasn't on set, we could do a surgical mask. As soon as they announced that the cast was coming to set, we all had to put on face shields, which, boy, makes it hard to look at a monitor. And uh, N95s. Everybody in a, in a sitcom, the, the key floor personnel all have, <laughs> we call it the podium parade. Everybody has a lectern to work at, that you roll around, that are on wheels. And pre-COVID, everybody would sort of cram their lecterns together, the script, script soup, associate director, director, me, a uh, bunch of producers. It would, it would be crazy, the number of these things that were out there. Post-COVID, those things all had to be socially distanced from each other. Uh, and... Uh, it would have been a good time to, you know, own stock in plexiglass. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Three-sided uh, uh, plexiglass shields shields around them as well. We were not permitted to eat or drink on set, which did wonders for my weight, not being able to go to craft service. Uh, worked out very nicely for me. Well, they still had craft services, uh, but it was done kind of like a prison commissary, where as opposed to walking into the room and grabbing whatever you wanted, there was now a craft services attendant who you would ask uh, to give you X, Y, or Z. And then you did have to go outside, literally outside, to where we had so-called green zones, to where you could eat and where you could have your mask off. Um, in catering was obviously the 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 world of the steam table ended uh so you there everybody would order their catered meal and it was all prepackaged uh indiv- individually packaged and uh we wound up having to eat uh it extended the lunch hours uh to the detriment of production um, or increased overtime uh, because in what used to be our where everybody could eat at the same time again that all had to be socially dis- uh, distanced so suddenly the six foot banquet table that had eight people at it now had two surrounded by plexiglass on each side you know again so it took a lot more time to get everybody through a meal people in the uh a group, the ones that had full access to the cast, were tested daily. The B group and the C group, we were tested weekly, uh, which I think was different from a lot of places. I have a, a lot of friends on the West Coast who were telling me uh, that they're getting tested three times a week, but we didn't. We didn't have to do that. So that was another thing that had to be worked into the schedule. You know, for somebody. To, you know, to tell you when you had to go, you know, when you had to go get your test. And then for background actors, extras, they were, they had, we had another testing site set up for real rapid testing. So, or any day player, whether it was crew, which we really weren't allowed to have, but, and back, and background 
uh, actors would have to come in and they would have to get a rapid test and be confirmed that uh, they were negative before they were allowed in the building. We also had to do every morning before getting to work, we had to do an online form that said, no, I don't have a fever, no, I'm not coughing, no, and submit that. And then you would get a reply back that you had to show when you went in the door and obviously getting your temperature taken. I am uh, generally a skeptic on that kind of stuff and and I'm not the world's greatest rule follower, but I went into this absolutely fully committed to following every rule all the time because there was just so much at stake with the ability to uh, get all of these people back to work. And, you know, I I wasn't going to be the one that uh, made an issue or, you know, screwed anything up for for anyone else. And everybody pretty much... uh, had the same the same feeling. We also had there were hand sanitizer stations all over the place, and and I would sometimes find myself uh, forgetting, you know, and you know the cast would be out and I would forget to put on, even though they announced that I'd forget to put on the other mask, and I would really feel I would suddenly realize it uh, and would feel just feel terrible and apologize to you know to everyone. The other thing that affected me is. There are times between takes and things where I, I might want to go out and check a spot where the, uh, there's blocking and take a, a meter out there, and I would have to remember to please ask the cast member uh, or the or the second teamer to step away before I took their mark to check, uh, you know, and it would be the kind of thing, you know, in the heat of battle, remembering to do that every yeah. time important as it was, I, you know, there were times I would find myself getting there and say, oh, you know, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Um, you know, so it, it I will say it, in the end, it didn't seem to hurt our schedule as much as everybody expected it to. We were still able to get everything done pretty much in the amount of time that we would have normally uh, gotten it done. The cast was not permitted to remove face masks uh, and N95s until we actually went to shoot. Oh, wow. You, so you didn't get a chance to really see it. So rehearsal was masked. Rehearsals were all masked, which I'm sure, as much as it made me crazy, probably made the uh, sound mixer even crazier. So, you know, hopefully by the time... This show gets back, if it gets back, uh, in hopefully early summer, um, you know, things will have come back to some sort of real normal, you know, where we'll be able to look at each other's faces again. Um, but in the meantime, you know, they really, the, I, think, I think the industry has done a, a really good job of uh, making it possible to be able to send people back to work. You know, I don't think there's anything to complain about in that realm. Uh, and I don't know anybody who would, would gripe. We all have to find, okay, how do you keep the, how do you keep your glasses from fogging? You know, like everybody else is walking down the street. How do you keep the face mask from fogging up? How do you keep the glasses from fogging up? You know, what do we do for the camera operators so they can see well enough to still make focus? You know, because obviously all of this junk 
in front of your face is, you know, affecting the clarity that you, you know, that you're seeing at. But it's all necessary, so we deal. The one thing I'd say is, you know, for all that some of the protocols you're talking about seem perhaps a bit excessive, you can't do a double-blind study to find out which part of it is it has the efficacy you need. It's the way you discover the answer is not good. Right. I was just talking or texting back and forth with a DP friend of mine out west named Johnny Simmons, who's had is doing, I think it's a different Netflix show right now, and they're in the midst of their second season. They came back around September or so, and they've had three shutdowns since then. Oh, wow. Even with all of the protocols uh, in place, somebody would get sick and they would shut the whole thing down for a week again. Um, We're finding our way back. I'm sure you probably heard, you know, there was on the set of, uh, I guess it's The Next Mission Impossible, the rant that Tom Cruise did in London because he t- thought he was one of the producers of the movie, obviously. And he found that there were people who were not uh, obeying the protocols. And he called the entire crew together and on a major, major rant uh, at them. And he was right. Yeah, he was absolutely right. And it was one of those cases where it's like, listen, you know, I after the kind of behavior he was talking about, right. like, be glad he was ranting at you and not firing you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, one thing he was absolutely right about was that, you know, they were really a forerunner of trying to do this work under these conditions. And it's like, there's a lot of people who have nothing to do with this show that are depending on us getting this right. Right. We were, they told us whether it's really true or not. I don't know. We were told when we started that we were the first studio multi-camera to come back. And then again, they impressed the same thing. So uh, on us that, Uh, You know, so everybody's watching to see, you know, if we can pull it off and make it work. And now that so many people are back, obviously, if in fact that was the case, you know, it's a good thing we didn't crash and burn because we could have taken not only our own jobs with it, I guess potentially we could have taken the jobs of a gajillion people out on the West Coast, too, if it had been determined, no, it's too dangerous because these guys had, you know, issues. Tell me about this whole like slate of Disney sitcoms you do, like Girl Meets World and those other ones. Like, how does production on those things work? Uh, I would call it did now. That was what I was doing for the five years or so that I was commuting to L.A. And I don't really have any intention of going back. Oh, I see. The biggest difference on those shows, from a practical standpoint, is that you're working on what we call kid hours where depending on the age of the kid, they're only permitted to be at work. I I think it was something like, I don't know the rules exactly, but something like seven hours a day or seven out of eight. They had to have the, you know, the one hour meal and two hours or two and a half hours of that had to be spent in school, quote school, uh, being tutored. So the limitation of time was ramped up that that pressure of always being ready and not having to interrupt the flow of production even more than it is in a show with adults um because they're you know the producers and director are obviously very very jealous of their time with the kids on set Technique, biggest change in lighting technique for me was um, the six-foot adult and uh, the 
four and a half foot tall kid (laughs) standing in a in a fifty fifty. A fifty fifty is when the cast members are talking to each other and essentially perpendicular to the mouth of the set. This stuff these shows tend to be very, very proscenium. I'll go back to to the theater reference. Um, so the proscenium line is is essentially the mouth of the set, and we'll we even call it that. You know, so a fifty fifty is the actor is perpendicular to the proscenium line. So you've got this really tall person and this really littler, relatively person. So the potential of the big one shadowing the little one suddenly uh, is much higher than when it's either two kids or two adults that are relatively the same size. Uh, so it would make changes in how I would light, both in terms of the steepness uh, of a cross light, a key light, uh, and how far around to the upstage side I would bring it. Because they also, in these shows, in no show, are the actors spectacular about their marks, hitting marks. On these shows, the marks are... Uh, and suggestions? ...of where to land. Uh, so you need to, needed to protect yourself. And it's things like... If you start having actors shadowing each other, it's a really good way to get fired because to have to do if they lose a take, it's one of the it's one of the few things they technically that they will go back and do an additional take for is some bad shadowing. But if it happens with any frequency, you're not going to be around for very long. So like I say, you wind up keying steeper than you might otherwise have hoped to be able to, and you might have to go further around more than you might normally want to. The shows tend to be more flatly lit. Well, is this where you use that, uh, you're lighting up a a large white drape with a whole bunch of source fours to have that super diffuse bounce light? The bounce light, that's pretty much either with source four pars or even sometimes source four Lico's. That, for my front light, is that that's pretty much on every show because whether you're riding it at the same level as key and have no modeling at all or you're riding it way down to have a three to one or a four to one ratio, you still want it to be very, very soft because of the boom and you don't want to be throwing shadows upstage. So that's why you wind up with a teaser out in front, four to six feet away. You want to hang a teaser that'll cut most of it about halfway up a back wall. Generally, I use um, the extra wide flood uh, source four pars on about four foot centers from about six feet away. One of the Disney shows, the last one I did, we had a techno jib on the show and we would do shots that went from they had the show had audience involvement in it so we were doing shots that were connecting the sets to the audience and big sweeping things so i wanted to keep those shots as clear as possible of gack so in that case i had to bring my bounce further away from the set and as a result to maintain obviously to maintain the angle i had to go higher uh, so my throws were farther. So on that, I wound up, that was a case where I wound up using Lico's uh, to get a little extra oomph. Sorry for interrupting you there. You were talking about what you, what you were doing for the proscenium style Disney shows. Right. So generally, the shows are lit flatter than I like. Uh, I had on one, I literally, from a Disney executive VP of programming, got a note that the show was too prime time, <laughs> which basically meant the show's too dark or there's too much modeling. So again, in the interest of, you know, job number one, a happy client is a good client, turned up the fill light. Fortunately, 
the exception to that was Girl Meets World, which I count among certainly one of the better, if not, you know, counting on one hand, best shows I've ever been involved with. The executive producer and writer was spectacular on that show. And he also, and probably why I thought he was so spectacular, she really gave me free reign. He was a amateur still photographer. And he just really liked my work. So any whatever I came up with, uh, he was always, you know, incredibly supportive of. So that show was a total pleasure because I could light it the way I wanted. And I also happen to think that uh, for any show, I would have said the scripts were good, and the cast was good, and the characters were good. And it would be really probably the only Disney show I did, and I think I did seven of them, that I would say that about the other shows were really um, try and do good work, try and be professional, but really in terms of content, just totally and utterly forgettable. But Girl Meets World, I had a real affinity for the show itself. It was a, it was really just a pleasure in every way. You did deliver some really beautiful scenes in that show. I remember seeing a rooftop scene that you had done. Boy, that was the first time. Again, and I was able to take chances. If it's the one that I think you're talking about, which was a nighttime graduation party. Yes. On a roof. It made me wonder, what are the conditions under which you actually get to make art in the middle of these content machines? Well, that, that's what the Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday are for. Um, and on that one, I have a thing in general with, you know, we do exteriors in the studio on these shows all the time. And it's, it's sort of the worst of all possible worlds to be doing a multi-camera exterior on a stage because you still have to make sure you've got the exposure, you're getting the singles where the cameras are 120 degrees apart. So you can't say, oh, I'm going to put up a really hot key on one side and the rest is going to fall to shadow because then you've got a bunch of singles on one side that just don't work. But I hate, 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 hate multiple shadows and especially multiple shadows and multiple directions of sun on the floor because any horizontal surface shows all your sins when you see the drop shadows. Now, sometimes, you know, if it's a street scene, you say, okay, well, there's a street light. I'm motivating this from street light. I've got a window of store that's going to motivate that and that. So you can say, okay, that stuff can make some sense if it's not a real singular shadow. In that roof scene, it was some way, oh, well, there's a roof. So you're, I really don't have, what's the source that I'm working from? So I know I want to be able to get really, really soft, but also have a lot of shape. But again, I didn't want to, I wanted to be able to look at a floor in a wide shot and not be giving up all of my sources. So what I actually did, we had this big trans light that I lit like a normal trans light from behind. But above the trans light, unfortunately, we had the grid height to do it. I basically wrapped all three sides around the trans light with bounce. And I lit the entire set with bounce light. I mean, there might have been one or two hard lights. I remember there was a practical in one spot, so I probably had a couple of things to support that practical. But the vast majority of the work was all done with this bounce. And yeah, it actually it was one of the things I'm really happy with in the end. And then we still had the bounce out front. Uh, it turned into being, it was two things. One, it was a leap of faith to do it because I'd never done it before. So it's, all right, am I going to, you know, am I going to wind up tearing all of this stuff down and having to do something else in the end? And my gaffer, 
Brian McKinnon was a little concerned. Uh, what we did find that became a problem that we had to solve, unfortunately we did, was that the Duratrans or Chromatrans, you know, as you know, they're glossy on the front. So angle of reflection equaling the angle of incidence, I had reflections of all the bounce in the drop itself. Where were you burying the reflections? Yeah, we hung gajillions of teasers. Oh, all right. To rather than hide the reflection that was existing, we made it so that nowhere the camera saw the drop did the drop see the bounce. Wow. And that took a lot of effort uh, to get right. But it real but that scene it really did pay off. I couldn't I couldn't have been happier. And Girl Meets World, we had another one. We had a, uh, again, it was shot on stage. We had a campfire scene, a bunch, bunch of the kids around a campfire. And I actually, the, the EP, Michael came to me and said, is this going to work or is this going to look like total shit? And I was like, no, Mike, we'll figure it out. And so the first thing I did was I went online and pulled stills from a whole bunch of movies of night campfire scenes in the woods. Because, you know, you can do it. You can do the blue night version. You can do the no-fill version. You can light up the background or not light up the background. So I pulled a whole bunch of things, and I sent them to him. And I said, okay, pick your favorite, and that's what I will work to give you. Um, and he actually picked Easy Rider. Oh, hey. <laughs> Which had, and it was probably a function of budget on that movie at the time, but the the scene was 99% of it was just the campfire. You'd barely see anything in the distance uh, in that, though I think it, it was probably still out in the desert or something, but it really was the actors and pretty much nothing else. Fonda, um, Nicholson, and uh, Hopper in the scene. So we actually did have a live fire on the set, which was pretty impressive of our producer, UPM, to pull off on stage. So we had a live fire. So I wound up lighting that with three 750 softs, put them on the floor, you know, sort of wrapping around the fire. We carefully flagged off the floor and off all the rocks and stuff in front of the fire, you know, because that would have been a dead giveaway, obviously, having that stuff front lit uh, when it was supposed to be coming from the fire. And were they kind of angled to go through the fire? Uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. And I probably had them, at least the ones on the wings, on the, on the outsides, sidered with flags so that, let's say, if you're looking at it from the proscenium, the fire is in the middle, you've got a wrap of kids around it. You know, I wouldn't want the stage right, camera left kid, their right side of their face, the off-camera side, that would be away from the fire, I wouldn't want that light hitting that side of their face. So I'm sure I flagged everything to keep it so that it was all sort of center out from the fire. Um, I threw in one high up and away 5K backlight that had, it was a new night gel pack that I decided to try. You know, the sort of usual convention would be a half blue or a full blue. I never was crazy. I've done it a thousand times, but I was never crazy about it. So I did a couple of tests, and I wound up actually with a half blue and an eighth plus green. And it created this silvery look that, that was different that I've really become fond of using. That's sort of become my go-to uh, for Night Moon. And that just edged up all the trees and the foliage behind 
uh, a little bit. We did have a drop. I don't even remember if, if I lit it or not. I don't recall, actually, if I did a flicker effect on those soft lights or not. I very well may not have because I was actually getting a lot of exposure from the fire itself. So I let the fire do the work so that it was truly the effect was synced to the real fire. So all I was doing was supporting the fire with these other softs. A lot of other EPs wouldn't have let me get away with it. There was one scene where a couple of characters step away a few steps and they were African-American. And I had to add just the tiniest touch of uh, fill light for the, the actor that was facing away from the fire. But they caught enough off of that high moon that became sort of a high side light. And it was definitely underexposed, but there was enough. And the EP bought it. So again, that show was just a delight to do. The other ones were really be professional, do your job, do your work. But at the end of the day, content-wise, they were just crud. Do you have any thoughts about other shows, like discussion shows, panel shows, anything else you want to talk about with respect to lighting television? My thing, like in doing a panel, I do try and, unless it's such a locked-in formatted thing, I try and light it as a group, and then I throw a couple of spare Lecos or whatever in so that if I get the Snuffleupagus next to Big Bird, then I've, you know, I've got to help, and I'll try and keep it right as close to the real key as possible so I'm not getting into a lot of double shadow crap. And that way, you know, it's there if you need it. But if you're doing a supplemental light, light like that, I mean, you should be starting with a pile of ND in it. I always say, you know, you put a lens in front of a light and it's not 32, you're 3000 before you put it in it. And then you put in another piece of diffusion. I always found when I do sitcoms with hard cross lights, uh, I typically have a piece of 250 or 216 on the lens. And I focus always at either 80 or 85 points so that I always, when I'm setting levels, so I'll set my levels at 85, and then I know I've got <clears throat> when I yeah. need it. And that right there gets it down to about 2850. And that's at like 80 points, you know. Okay. Right around 2850 is usually where I wind up uh, chipping shows. And I don't do it anymore. For a while, I was doing things when I was into warmer pictures. I would add a piece of like eighth blue onto the light to force the picture a little warmer. So when they chipped, they were having to paint some extra warmth in to get it back to neutral. And then the camera gets to the set and you've got suddenly you've got a warm picture as a result. Got it. Right. You know, you just work in the work in the opposite direction you're trying to go. If you wanted a cool picture, put something uh, warm on the chip light because then they're going to have to add more blue when they chip. I would also say if you're going to be an LD, learn photography. If you don't really know photography as in using a camera in manual and if you're going to work in the TV realm, whether you're doing it as a DP, whether you're doing it as an LD, get out a camera, turn off all of the automatic stuff learn how to make an exposure, pay attention to how aperture changes depth of field, pay attention to how different focal length lenses create different backgrounds and different fall-offs in depth of field. 
understand the sensitivity um, of the sensors, understand the relationship of sensor sizes with depth of field and aperture. All of that stuff, it'll also help you get a, a better sense of composition, which you use composition and lighting just as much as you use it in framing. For me, it was an accident because I just happened to get into photography when I was a kid, but it paid off hugely for me. You've mentioned a couple times that you've done corporate theater. What did you bring from television lighting design to corporate theater? And then what did you bring back from corporate theater to television? When I started doing corporate theater, you know, it was all the speechifying and then entertainment pieces uh, in a lot of the shows and scenery. And then as the years went on that I did it, the scenery all disappeared and it all became screens. And so not just the mag, but instead of having a set, I, I have an 80 or 100 foot wide by 25 foot tall screen with blended images on them. And the job, as I saw it, became making sure that the mag in the room looked good. Because along with the 80-foot wide screen backing the set that the presenters would just pace back and forth on, we would also have a large number of iMag screens distributed throughout the house. And the screens were hugely important because I was doing these shows in... Uh, cavernous spaces at convention centers, the Moscone Center in San Francisco, which is just a huge underground dungeon. And if you were sitting anywhere halfway back to the rear of the house, it was like sitting in the heavens in a stadium watching the stones or something. Yeah, the majority of the audience has to look at the IMAX screens. Yeah, because there's nothing to see. So suddenly the balance of foreground of human being to screen became a, like the paramount consideration to have. Yeah, well, the screens were... When we're talking projection here, I'm not, we're not talking about LED screens. We're talking about rear projection in all of these cases. And so they weren't particularly bright. So as a result, the lighting levels on the stage wound up coming down like crazy so that the balance of, of the human to the screen looked right. You know, that they weren't irising down so much to get the human being right that the screen would go dark. And as a result, the shows became very dim for the people who were trying to watch it live in the room. The lighting levels were like totally inappropriate to something going on in a venue that size. You know, we were suddenly lighting these stages to 50-foot candles that, for the sake of a, of a live audience, should have been at least twice that, three times that. When it was just mag of people on scenery, not a problem because you were lighting the scenery and you were lighting the people and you light them all so that they balance to each other and then the camera would get iris to wherever the camera needed to be and everything looked fine. But suddenly the screen became the determining factor for both color and intensity. And so we were also then suddenly on any conventionals that were in there. And a lot of the stuff was laying out washes with conventional lights. And all of that stuff was having to be gelled down with full CTBs to get a decent color balance. And so the screens didn't look cold or the human beings look ridiculously warm. Now, they would, in manipulating the images, the content, we would find a middle ground so that I would get the color temperature to around 4,500, 4,800 Kelvin. And then we would adjust the content that was being projected to the warm side so that we found a place in the middle. But the shows generally to the live audience actually 
wound up looking pretty crummy because they were dim, they were blue-white. There was just nothing that if you were just doing it for the eye, that it, it would certainly not look you know, the way that they had to look in order to preserve the mag screens in the room, as well as the archival recordings that they care about as well. If they went back and looked at an archival recording, even if it looked great in the 10th row, what they're going to remember is the archive as much as anything else. So that was what I brought from television was that understanding of color temperature and all of that stuff and how to make a live show look bad (laughs) for the sake of television. On the other side, what I took from the live world back to TV was knowledge of moving lights. That was really where I got my first taste of working with moving lights back in the days of the IntelliBeams and cyber lights. So I took my moving light experience came out of corporate theater, and then I was then in the entertainment stuff that I did in television. I was able to apply it there. Did you find yourself having to convince people that you needed the programmers or operators that you needed? You know, it's like, yes, I need these lights, but that also adds on additional things I need. Yeah, getting the rates for the programmer as opposed to the conventional, the old conventional board op made back in the day, made, you know, $50 a day more than the regular electrics. There wasn't that much of of a difference. And suddenly, you know, with real programmers, they were making, I don't know, 50% more. There's a lot more. So getting producers on board with that took a little while. And also the idea of having to have a moving light tech on as a dedicated crew member was another one. And and that actually, it took a while for them to convince me of that. I would say, no, we'll take care of it. And then I got burned a couple of times and said, oh, I guess that really is an important position. It's like we say in, in the television world, we don't really have that much in the way of maintenance engineers anymore. But we always say the, the guy that you want to pay and that you never actually want working is the maintenance engineer. Yeah. I did, my, I guess, my share of live and recorded concerts. I never did very much in the way of award shows, certainly not of any real size. But they got into there first. Um, what live concerts? I did a series for a few years out of the Ritz, what is now Webster Hall, where we would, I guess, every couple of weeks or so, we would go in. And those were always a bear because the band would show up with their LD. So there was always a huge negotiation about the kinds of changes that we would ask. Not every band came in with an LD. So sometimes I was full out LD. Sometimes I was just trying to corral the guy into helping us to make pictures that would work for TV. I did a bunch for MTV, and I did some years of going down to Florida to do spring break for them. And we always had, as an element of spring breaks, we'd have a, we'd have a couple of real concerts. I never really used it in narrative television as a regular part of a rig, but on some of these Disney shows I did that had concert elements in them because it was about a rising young rock star, in the case of Shake It Up, rising young dancers, we had the entertainment elements within the sitcom. So I always had movers as part of that rig. In those shows where you had to have an entertainment lighting rig that appeared on camera, like the lights actually appeared on camera Mm -hmm. because they're part of the show, what did you have to do to make sure that those concepts were captured properly on camera? I think the biggest thing in anybody who uses automated fixtures in television knows that the amount of chroma that comes out of these things 
can become problematic where everything becomes way oversaturated, quote, illegal color, where it destroys any detail in what it just becomes so overmodulated. There's something you always see it, and I still see it on the air a lot, in particular in blues. And some of that may be because in some cases, the units are being used in combination with tungsten light. You know, the best thing is always to get the whole rig over into the daylight spectrum for that stuff, because then you can also reproduce uh, the warm colors. If you're doing a show that, that's normally balanced in tungsten and you leave it in tungsten for these entertainment elements, you're suddenly, how come I can't get an amber out of the thing? Well, you can't get an amber out of the thing because the reference white for the movers is 6,000, 6,556, wherever that happened to fall, and the camera is chipped to 32. So even the warm colors are still so cold, you can't get them out. You find that besides in the obvious world of the ambers, trying to get lavenders or purples to read on camera can be, you know. They just go straight to blue. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or if you can get it there at all, you look at it to your eye and you're swearing. You're somewhere on the red side of magenta, you know, to your eye. That's the biggest part. Um, I've done some where I've been stuck having to keep the show, even the entertainment thing, at a 3200 balance, where I'll, I'll literally tape gel over the fronts of movers if they didn't have you know, a variable 85 filter in them to try and just pull the show together into one color spectrum. You know, we had to do this again, you're going back to concerts and, and this is sort of concerts when there weren't a lot of movers, when, you know, the, the, when the rigs were still heavily par rigs, but you were using either HMIs or, or Xenon spotlights and having to go in and color correct the spotlights to 32 in order to have any of the tungsten rig look correct. And that was always hugely time-consuming, and you had to do every spot individually. And you either sit there with a color meter or with the thing on a grayscale chart, and, okay, put on a full CTO. Okay, take off the full, put on a half and a quarter. Okay, add an eighth to that. Okay, now let's add a quarter minus green. Uh, Oh, okay, well, that was better on that, but now the light has become too warm. So pull the eighth CTO. You wind up with these gel packs custom for every light for the sake of one night and spending, you know, just ludicrous amounts of time to try and get them within a 100 degrees Kelvin of each other so that the four frontline guys who each had a spot all had reasonably similarly colored flesh tones. It, it took a lot of time and was always a major pain in the neck for something that was absolutely critical, but sort of had nothing to do with any creative aspect of getting the show together. You directed a few episodes of one of my favorite shows of all time. Can I ask you about TV Funhouse, all about TV Funhouse? Absolutely. TV Funhouse. I think we did 10 episodes. I did half an old friend of mine, yet another guy who's passed away, named Ted May, who I had met. Uh, was a director and associate director at Sesame Street, did the other half. And Ted did the pilot. When we shot the pilot, and I lit the pilot, and I was also senior LD on the series as well as uh, directing. Um, but we did the pilot, and first time I worked with Robert Smigel. Oh. Uh, Triumph. Yeah, that was my first experience <laughs> with Robert. 
but I was just, I was sort of dumbfounded by the show. For those who may not know, it was a show that uh, mixed um, decadent puppets who were in a kid's show. Well, it, it, it purported it, to be a, like, a Saturday morning kids variety show. Exactly. But the, the animal puppets who were in the show were actually alive, and they were drug addicts, sex addicts, uh, foul in every possible way. And, and most of the show... Other than the animations, where it was was following them around in their antics. So, in the pilot, the show ended with the mall in a. Uh, oh, the show also not only had puppets, it had the human. We had live animals, uh, so it was really easy to do. Uh, but uh, the show ended with all of the puppet characters, the Anapals, in a Tijuana whorehouse having sex with live chihuahuas dressed up as hookers. Uh, we had a, a cockfight between uh, a live rooster and a puppet rooster. The show was so hard. We were so behind schedule, that, and the animal handlers were actually terrible. And so we had this rooster. They put this rooster down in the cock ring. These are all elevated sets over your head to accommodate the puppeteers. And the live rooster immediately sort of just closes its eyes and stands there. And the puppet is trying to get it to fight, and it's just, the thing is sleeping. And <laughs> Robert turns to the animal and says, get him to do something. It's a southern animal handler goes, well, he's not going to do anything. It's time to roost. <laughs> yeah. And that was just, <laughs> anything that could go wrong on that show went wrong. It was absolutely nightmare. But I was sort of, we, we got through the pilot and I laughed and it was for Comedy Central. But when we finished, I said to my wife, you know, if this thing goes to series, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. I just, this is not something that belongs on basic cable. And I had young kids at the time and I was like, I would not want Cater Jack to stumble on this thing. I think I'm probably just going to have to turn it down. Some months go by, and I get a phone call, and they say, oh, well, I've got great news. The show's been picked up. Oh, God, that's real. I'm really delighted to hear it. Um, you know, and we were thinking, it's too much for one person to direct. So we were wondering, would you want to direct half of them? And, of course, I'm, when do we start? <laughs> <laughs> so much for my scruples. But it was a total and utter bear to get through. It was like 16 hours a day every day and just problem after problem. Oh, you can't put the goat next to the lamb because the lamb will fight with the goat. It was just every, everything. And, and then doing a puppet show with Ray's sets is hard, even if it's just puppets, because just communicating with the puppeteers, because they're 12 feet away underneath a four-foot-high deck. So you're sort of bending down and yelling into the dark void down there. It was brutal. Robert is an incredibly funny man, and he's actually, unlike what you may think if you watch Triumph, he's actually, once he's offset, he's an incredibly kind man, too, and unbelievably smart. But he has no business running a television show. <laughs> and this was something early on with him that it, it actually took me a long time to understand his approach. Because Robert is a, a lot of things and a puppeteer is not one of them. It finally occurred to me, I came out of sort of the Henson Sesame Street school where the whole idea was to forget 
that it's a puppet. It's just another character. And it can be next to a human being, and you don't think of it as being a puppet. Kermit is Kermit, Fozzie is Fozzie, the bird is the bird, and so on. Uh, and the technique and all of that is supposed to become invisible. Robert has what I call a Brechtian approach to puppetry. It is all about the artifice. That's the joke, is how ridiculous the whole thing is. And it took me a while to understand that, because, I, you know, a head would come into frame. I'd be like, cut, cut, cut. He's like, what are you cutting for? I said, well, you got a head. He said, I don't care that there's a head. And I'd be, no, you have to keep. And for a while, I was like, no, I, you can't have that stuff. It's got to be this. It took me a long time to realize that it wasn't even just that it wasn't important to him. It was actually seeing the artifice was important to him. And to do stuff, we would bring in occasionally Henson-type uh, puppeteers and puppet wranglers, and it never worked. You know, they hated him. It's just two completely and utterly different schools. So we did the 10, and the show was just too crazed and too expensive. So we, we never went back and did any more. Robert is Robert. And it's a roller coaster ride if you sign on. Which is not to say if, he, if I got off with you and the phone rang and he said, hey, I'm doing this show, I would probably go, okay, when do we start? What are your thoughts on the current state of the TV business? And what direction do you see the business going in? What I would say for where the business is going, it's really hard for me to predict what's going to happen. Uh, things are changing so fast in all of the distribution models. The one thing that I can say is that certainly if I started doing all of this stuff around, I'll go back to getting out of school in 79 and 40 years later than it is now, there were also tons of big changes in those years too. Um, Lord knows in the technology, massive changes. Was that also when like the dominance of the big three networks was starting to break down? Absolutely. With the start of cable. The, the good thing for us is in cable, because things started small, those of us who didn't really have a lot of experience were able to go and get in and grow with it. But I think what anybody has to do, if you're going to be successful in the future, and especially if you're going to be successful and have longevity if you don't live in Los Angeles, if you're going to live in New York or live anywhere else in the country. I think the most important thing is to not become pigeonholed. And uh, I, I speak from vast experience as somebody who in the last 10 or 15 years became truly pigeonholed after having done lots of different kinds of stuff. And that really worked to my detriment. I went in I always liked narrative. I came out of theater, so doing narrative stuff was really important to me. And I worked hard to go in that direction. But as a result, all of the other work that there was more of, certainly in aggregate, and even as each individual segment, I no longer worked in that stuff, and everybody forgot I existed. So it became the only thing that I could do was this narrative stuff. And 90% of it, because I came from a multi-camera world, remained in a multi-camera world. So I was never able to transition fully or even largely into that single camera, more filmic world, because the multi-camera world is a redheaded stepchild of filmmaking. So to try and bust through that wall, at least for me, became impossible. So all I can say to anybody is... 
do talk shows, do news, do games, do variety, do entertainment, do sketch, do other kinds of narrative, and try throughout your career to keep doing all of it just as a way of being able to protect yourself from the winds of change and whatever becomes the programming flavor for X number of years. Adaptability and being out there in lots of forms, I just think is going to be key. And I only see it as becoming even more important in the future. Do you have any final thoughts? I have final thoughts. An important one, and I've alluded to it a few times, is a trade negotiator who I actually heard speak at, uh, as a keynote at an industrial. And he was talking about negotiating, but I think it's true of most everything. And he said, the important thing is to care, but not too much. Everybody wants to do their best possible work and to please themselves. But you also got to remember that it's more important to please the person that you're working for than it is to please yourself if you're going to make a living, if you're going to have a career. So don't get so invested in your vision or anything that you can't adapt it heavily if that's what's called for. And that also goes for just, you know, sort of your attitude towards work. I think for some reason, lighting people, lighting designers, we have a high regard for ourselves. And I don't think we necessarily suffer fools gladly. And maybe this is because lighting is somewhat of a second thought. I've called it sometimes that producers sort of consider it, in a lot of cases, a necessary evil. I think if you can accept that, you will stand to go a lot further and be and uh, more successful. Because if you don't accept that and you feel like your work is being shrugged off or you're not getting the due or the consideration that you think if you're doing lighting, you're doing lighting because you think it's important. Well, not everybody is going to think it's as important as you do. And those are the chances are those are the people you're working for. Understand your place in the food chain and don't get snotty about it. So there's that. And then I will leave you with, with this. And that is um, don't forget to have a life. If you're going to stick it out for a million years, you know, being a lighting designer, being a DP, it's not the be-all and end-all. It's not what you want to put on your tombstone. So just remember to have some other interests and, you know, have people in your life and have things because ultimately it's important, that, you know, and it can be a good career, but uh, that doesn't make it a life. Thanks very, very much, Bill. I, I've had a great time, really. I, I can't thank you enough. It's been great. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light, we tweet at Podcasting Light, and we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.